Yes, hello, it's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guest today has been a long time in coming. It's John Michael Greer, one of the most original and important writers in both magic and politics today. He was born in 1962 and is an American author, blogger, occultist, and teacher, known for his writings not just on the occult, but on ecology, politics, appropriate technology, oil depletion, and a whole lot more. He's written over 70 books, actually. Greer has been an active participant in Freemasonry and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and has also served as the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America from 2003 to 2015. Greer is also a prolific author, having penned a series of 11 fantasy novels based on the worlds created by H.P. Lovecraft and his Cthulhu mythos, titled The Weird of Halley and a political military thriller, Twilight's Last Gleaming. Today, we're going to be talking about his latest book, The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. In this intriguing work, Greer explores the role of magic and the occult in the rise of the ultra-conservative right, focusing on the unexpected presidential victory of Donald Trump in 2016. It's a great book. It's very challenging and thought-provoking and disturbing quite frequently. Makes a great um, companion piece, by the way, to Gary Lockman's Dark Star Rising. Greer in the book presents a compelling argument that two competing schools of magic were led to contend for the presidency. And he then shows how the political and magical landscape of American society has permanently changed since the 2016 election. All right, so we're going to be talking about some contentious stuff today, uh, to say the least. So before we begin, I'm going to do a standard disclaimer here. It's probably not totally necessary, but these days you can never be too sure. So I want to make it clear that we're going to be talking about some extreme ideologies in the podcast, but that does not represent at all on any level, an endorsement of those ideologies. Our aim here on this podcast is to understand the ideological undercurrents that have shaped the preceding years of global politics and to understand those from a sociological perspective. So to make it triply clear, this podcast does not endorse or promote any form of fascism or other extreme ideologies. Our goal here is to foster understanding and discussion and not to promote divisive or harmful beliefs. Okay, with that thankfully out of the way, let's talk about The Magic of Tarot, the newest comprehensive course offered by Magic.me. This course is your gateway to unlocking the mysteries of the universe and transforming your life. You're going to be guided by the world's greatest teacher of the art, author Lon Milo Duquette, with whom you'll embark on a journey of self-discovery and spiritual evolution. In the course, you'll not only master the Thoth Tarot, but you'll also venture into the beautiful world of Kabbalah, learn about the spirits within the cards, and discover how to interact with them. This immersive experience will align you with the vast interconnectedness of the cosmos, opening new dimensions of understanding. One of the greatest highlights of this course is going to be a guided meditation journey through all 22 major trumps, led by Lon Milo Duquette himself. These meditative experiences will unearth the essence of each Trump, integrating their wisdom into your consciousness and empowering you to make choices aligned with your true will. 
And in the grand finale, you'll bring together everything you've learned to create your own tarot deck, a tangible reflection of your journey and a tool for continued spiritual growth and divinatory practice long after the course concludes. So whether you're a novice or a veteran, this course is designed to fit into even the busiest schedule. It's self-paced, fully recorded, and accessible across all your devices. And with a 100% money-back guarantee, you can invest in yourself with confidence. So why wait? Embark on your journey today with the magic of tarot. Your future self is already thanking you. Visit tarot.magic.me to learn more. T-A-R-O-T dot M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Tarot.magic.me. I will see you in class. Okay, now let's get back to our fascinating conversation. Please join me in welcoming the author of the thought-provoking book, The King in Orange, John Michael Greer. Yeah, I just finished your book and I loved it. It is, I, 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 I really loved it. I, I think it's the best, um, it's the best overview of kind of the undercurrents of what's actually been going on post 2016 um, that I've read. And I liked Gary Lockman's book. Heavens. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. for real. I like Gary Lockman's book, um, Dark Star Rising, mm-hmm. quite a mm-hmm. lot, but I think this mm-hmm. really got to the core of things. Um, and, and part of it is, I, I think you, you just kind of flat out say a bunch of obvious things that people are afraid to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that's usually what I end up doing in a lot of my, a lot of my political and, and social writing. It's a matter of saying the thing that everyone knows and nobody else will talk about. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's so much to talk about in this book and, um, maybe, uh, I want to st- well, maybe, maybe just start off um, saying to the audience a little bit about um, uh, your background and how you came, what this book is and how you came to write it, and then maybe we can dig into some of the some of the several of the points in it. Some of some of the details of the king in orange and everything that relates to it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, my background is weird. We can just start with that. Um, I am I am an independent writer and scholar. I don't have an official position anywhere. Um, I came out of um, South Seattle suburbia was where I grew up. Um, went through um, two colleges, ended up with a degree in history of ideas, which is perhaps the most one of the most useless degrees one can think of, except that it's very useful if you want to write on some of the subjects that I write about. And so I, my, my first book was published in 1996. That's my writing's my career. Um, these days I live in, um, in Rhode Island with my wife, Sarah, and um, live a very quiet life and um, write a lot and blog a lot. So that's kind of that's kind of who I am in terms of how I came to this whole business. Um, I'm used to being on the outside looking in in terms of the sort of approved ideas of our time. And one of the things that I noticed early on in in the rise of Donald Trump was that nobody was talking about the obvious things that were going on in in the Trump campaign, in who was rallying to him, why all the Republicans that challenged him uh, tripped over their own shoelaces and landed face first in dirt. And nobody was willing to discuss the matter. I, by, back in January of 2016, 
um, I did a blog post where I predicted that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency. This was mm-hmm. at a time when, of course, the media thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. But um, <laughs> yes, it yes. was very clear to me that Trump had harnessed something, or something had harnessed Trump, to be more precise, and that he was likely to write it straight on into the White House, as of course he did. Well, I think for the purposes of this podcast here, I, I, we should definitely point out that you have a background in in magic and the Golden Dawn and Druidry okay. and things like that. Because this is, you know, yeah, we, we do can, talk about that on this podcast uh, quite a bit. We, we can, okay, okay, good. I'm I'm not really sure how how, how much to get into that because so many oh, people get into it, think. Yeah. Okay, good. So many people think you say magic, they think of Harry Potter and that kind of garbage. Um, you know, my definition has always been Dion Fortune's definition, um, the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Yes, I have been practicing for a very long time. I got into um, I got into occultism in my teen years, back in the 1970s. And that has been a major focus of my of my writing as well as my personal practice ever since. Um, I have had a position as the the arch the the head of or grand archdruid is official title of a druid order here in the United States. I've done various kinds of initiations, various kinds of work, just you know the sort of thing that happens to you when you're underfoot in the occult scene <laughs> and don't make too many enemies. And yeah, that second part is the hard so, bit. <laughs> that, that second, oh yeah, yeah, basically. I, and and it it is rather unfortunate that so many people in the occult scene don't seem to be able to manage that. They're they're too busy pissing people off to have a chance to really you know get offered. The, here, have a funny hat. <laughs> right. Well, you also edited the big uh, gold, the big brick Golden Dawn book, the most recent version. Oh, which yeah. Many people who listen yeah, to the show probably know that was that that, that was not my idea. Um, what happened there was that um, Llewellyn Publications, the outfit that has the copyright to that, they wanted to do a, seven, a new seventh edition. There were some problems with the sixth edition, the old black brick, and um, they had they actually had somebody on staff that was going to do it, but he quit and went to another job. They were looking around. Oh, we've got to find somebody. Is there anybody in the Golden Dawn scene who isn't? Um, at daggers are drawn with everyone else in the Golden Dawn scene, and again, that pretty much meant me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's talk yeah, about all you have to again. All you have to do is not not make too many enemies, and, and you get along. You, things like this happen to you. But I had a grand yeah, time work, working on that project, of course. But go on. Well, let's talk about. Um, I think in the first part of this book, you point out and articulate very, very clearly something that I think was obvious to a lot of people uh, in 2016, but which was, of course, taboo to say. And um, I think you go even further in um, your your assessment of the phenomenon. And this is, you talk specifically about the war between the salary class and the wage class. And uh-huh. I, I, I don't want to steal your thunder by giving that away, but... No, no, that, that's that's fine. Um, one, th- this is this is the forbidden topic in in the political economy of, of modern America, you're allowed to talk about gender, you're allowed to talk about race, you're allowed to talk about religion, you're allowed to talk about sexuality. Don't talk about class. And if you do talk about class, you're only permitted to talk about it as though the, the only division that matters is between the 1% and the 99%. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's, those are the rules. And the reason for those rules is that the 20%, the, the well-to-do salary class types have been engaging in class warfare against the other 80% uh, for, for longer than I've been alive. They have reaped 
most of the advantages of the social changes that have swept through the United States over that period, and they pushed all the costs on the working class, or as I call them in the um, in my in my book, the the wage class and the poor. Um, you can't mention that. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. In fact, if you do mention it, on the one hand, people pretend they didn't hear what you said, and if you push beyond that, they get well, people in the salary class get incandescently angry because mm-hmm. they're the good people. They're the people who are doing what's right. And they're only motivated by, you know, morals and virtue and good things. And they're actually greed, just as greedy as the rest of us. But they've learned to talk a good line in the sales pitch for the latest project to, to benefit themselves at everyone else's expense. This was the core, one of the core things that was going on in 2012. You had uh, two political parties, both of whom were completely beholden to the salary class. Mm-hmm. All they cared about was, what can we do to make the upper middle class even happier than they are now? Oh, and also the rich. You know, we are going to benefit those, of course, but it's not just the rich. Um, we're just going to throw more throw more benefits at the upper middle class, the salary class. We're going to throw, we're going to let the price of of housing continue to skyrocket. Who benefits from that? People who own real estate. Who gets screwed by that? The rest of us who rent. Um, and you can't talk about that dis- disparity. You're not even supposed to mention right. that maybe there's a class struggle going on here. In fact, if you mention that, there's all of this yelling about you're, you're getting into class conflict. Well, yes, <laughs> we've had an enormous amount of class conflict. The salary class um, has been fighting against the classes below it. They've been punching down the whole time. And the rest of us are not supposed to mention that fact, right? And you, that might hurt. That, that might hurt their widow feelings. Yes. <laughs> go on. Um, I mean, you you even go so far as to describe it as you know, there's a magic spell uh, on mentioning class, and I feel like this has always oh, yeah. been kind of one of the central lies of America that supposedly it's a classless society. And I think you even uh-huh. point out that in, that's not normal for other cultures, um, and, and these things can be mm-hmm. actually discussed openly, which is not not negative. Oh yeah. Yeah, the the thing is, if you every every human society is going to have some degree of hierarchy, some degree of class structure. There are going to be people who have more money, more influence, more power than others. That's going to happen. Um, it would be nice if it wasn't the case, but it's going to happen. So you have two choices: you can make the class system overt, so you can talk about it, so you can discuss it, you can deal with it, or you can make it covert. And that prevents it from being discussed and dealt with constructively. It just means the people who are on top get to keep on exploiting without suffering any blowback from the people there that they are exploiting. It's very much like if, if you've ever witnessed um, consensus organizations, organizations that claim to be egalitarian, we do everything by consensus. What that means is that there's a covert hierarchy that makes all the decisions. And because it's covert, There are no checks and balances. There's no way to rein them in. So these supposedly egalitarian systems are actually tend to be more abusive, more hierarchical, more domineering than the ones that actually have an established hierarchy. And so if you look at America over the last century or so, um, I mean, in, in 1923, people talked all the time about the, the, um, the struggle between the classes and the masses, as they called it. Mm-hmm. You know, the people in the upper, upper middle and, and middle classes on the one hand, the upper 20%, and the masses, everyone else. It was understood that they had, different, they had, um, they had differences of opinion. They had different interests. They, there were conflicts. And you had to deal with that openly. 
openly. You couldn't just pretend that everything's fine and we're in a, in an egalitarian society. And the mere fact that you know, twenty percent of the population is hogging most of the benefits, and the other eighty percent are taking all the costs. Can't be mentioned, right? And it, you, it, but it seems like in terms of a magic spell, that would only be, you know, the idea that America is classless would would presumably only be believed by the people benefiting from that. Mm-hmm. Well, they, the thing is, they try to push it on everyone. They try to push it on everyone. They try to silence dissent by making dissent unthinkable. Um, Ioan Culeanu, a very fascinating Romanian-American scholar from, of the last century, um, who wrote several important books on, on the history of magic. Um, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance is the one that I think matters most right now. He argued that modern societies are, in his terms, magician states. Mm-hmm. They don't have to rule by jackboots and, and prison camps anymore. They rule by manipulating consciousness. They rule by casting spells on people, using, their, using people's desires to manipulate them. And, you know, I think he has a very good point here. So the spell, the spell is believed in a kind of blind manner by the people who benefit from it. And that's important. You've got to keep them happy. You've got to keep them convinced that, that, that um, you know, they, they're just getting what they deserve. And um, anyone else can have it if they also, do, you know, if they do all the right things, which, of course, is not true. But you also have to cast that spell on the people who are, who are suffering on the people who are paying the costs of, of this, of this you know, bubble utopia, because they have to be kept divided. They have to be kept confused. They have to be kept in a position where they can't unite against the people who are exploiting them. Because if they figure out that they can unite, if they figure out that there is this, this division exists, it matters, and so on, <laughs> then the whole system comes crashing down very quickly. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about the magical dimensions of that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I love your phrase, the magic of the excluded versus the magic of the uh, excluders. And I never, excluders, yeah. yeah. And I never seen it put so clearly. And I, it, it kind of well, hit me where the, the magic of excluders is, you know, like yoga, positive thinking uh, is all mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. convince them that everything is fine. Where the mm-hmm. magic of the excluded is to, is based on the idea that nothing is fine and needs to be changed. Yeah. And the thing is, in you, if, as, I, as I pointed out in the book, one of the basic patterns of history is that the more rigid class bearers become, the more active people get, people below the, the line, get into magic. You can see this in the history of African-American magic especially well. Um, during the period of slavery, that was the great flowering of hoodoo, of, of African-American folk magic. During the period that followed the Civil War between then and the coming of Jim Crow around the beginning of the of, of this 20th century, you had a period where um, folk magic really dipped and wasn't so popular. Then we have Jim Crow, we have the hardcore um, exclusion and segregation, we have you know all that sort of thing, and Hoodoo picks up. It becomes it has its second golden age. It's all over the place. And then as after the civil rights era, things started fading out again. And it's very simple. When people can't seek, their bene- seek to benefit themselves by any straightforward way, they're going to turn to magic. Mm-hmm. They're going to turn to the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will, because that's what they've got. That's the option they have. Now, the fact that we have had an extraordinarily an ex- a busy explosion of magic in this country since the 1970s, 
we've had literally one of the world's great eras of magical study and practice, a period when an enormous number of magical resources have been made available, when someone like me can make a good living writing about magic. Um, That tells you right there, there's an enormous amount of exploitation going on. That tells you right there, social mobility is not what it's cracked up to Mm -hmm. be, and that there's a lot of people out there who want to better themselves and are not being permitted to do so Mm -hmm. by the system. So they're turning to magic because that's the option they've got. Yeah, and and I think putting that in opposition to the, I mean, you even mentioned uh, workers on Hillary's campaign. I mean, putting that, and I've seen magic mm-hmm. from both sides of this equation, you know, up close throughout different parts of my mm-hmm. life, but putting that in opposition to the kind of, you know, put your fingers in your ear, put your fingers in your ears and hum that everything's okay type of magic. La, 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 I can't yeah. hear you is your mantra. Yeah, exactly. And, and in fact, you, if you notice the kind of things that are practiced by the, by the privileged classes in our society, the watered down mindfulness meditation, mm-hmm. the watered down yoga, uh, so on and so, the fake shamanism and all this stuff, it's all about shutting out the, you know, shutting out the, the, the voice of dissent from the outer world is all about plugging your ears and convincing yourself that everything is fine. Because otherwise, you have to deal with the fact that it's not fine. You have to deal with the fact that your lifestyle is hurting people. And most people don't like to do that. Human nature is a mixed bag, but most people don't really enjoy the thought that their lifestyle is being built on the, you know, on the backs of suffering people. Uh, often yet, the, you know, the same suffering people that um, those magical systems were lifted from in the first place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the fact that, and the fact that at the same time, and this is another aspect of the same magic in a sense. If you, I've, I noted this also in the book, of course. If you really want to hear over-the-top hate speech, get a bunch of urban liberal upper middle class people talking about working class white Americans. You will hear savage bigotry. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you will hear bigotry on a level that would make Ku Klux Klan members oh, drop. Oh oh yeah, no for sure. Draws. I mean, the, the referring uh-huh. to the the flyover states and that that type of thing. Oh, yeah, I mean, like yeah. I I, I yeah. used to work in you know media office jobs in New York and London. I now and, and Los Angeles, you, and I, I now work. You've heard season. it all. Yeah, I've heard it all. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's it, 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 there. Anyone who's not in a coastal city, and that specifically, I don't, you know, specifically means New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, is considered mm-hmm. subhuman. And I, yeah. I now live in Texas because I, I just could, I, I could not take like uh, uh, a lot of the, I think you point out the kind of terminal collapse of, of these belief systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot different here, but I, much I'm nicer, sure actually. Yeah. People are much nicer. I'd be there if I could stand the climate. It's pretty hot, yeah. But yeah, exactly. We've got a situation where here are these people who call themselves the good people, who are presiding over a system that is that is brutally exploitive, that is pumping all the wealth up and all the costs down. And these same people are, you know, they're part of the magic spell they use to convince themselves that it's all okay. Is this kind of hate speech, this kind of insistence that those awful flyover people, these people that they're exploiting and abusing, don't deserve anything better, that they're evil, that they're Nazis, that they're racists and bigots, and right, they fill right. in the blank. They, they won't even drink Bud Light. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 
Well, you talk, you, you make a, an interesting parallel. Um, I mean, you talk about a couple things in connection with that. I mean, obviously that's, uh, well, you talk about shadow projection, but you also compare it mm-hmm. to the Victorian attitudes around sex, which I thought was, oh, yeah. I'd never considered. That was, that, that struck me, what was it, about three years ago? I was watching people going on about hate. It was hate speech and hate thought and, and all this kind of stuff. And it suddenly, I, I've been reading some 19th century literature, it so happened that it just suddenly struck me. They're talking about hate the way Victorians talked about sex. Now, you know, I, I, I will probably shock our audience that will be blushing and, you know, clapping smelling salts to their noses to keep from fainting, but hate is a perfectly no, normal human emotion. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not um, evil incarnate. It's not, you're not going to be dragged off to the current, um, um, you know, scientific materialist uh, liberal idea of hell for for harboring thoughts of hate, um, the way Victorians thought you would be for harboring thoughts of sex. Um, It's a normal human reaction. It's a normal and occasionally and sometimes a healthy human emotion. But it's taboo in our society. Now, Notice what happens if you look at Victorian England. Victorian, Victorian London had more prostitutes uh, mm-hmm. per capita than any other city in the world. It was crawling with sex, sex workers in the middle of the period of Victorian, um, you know, Victorian primness and prudishness. What's going on, of course, is the return of the repressed. What you repress, you're going to express somewhere covertly, secretly. So we have all of these people yelling about hate speech and then turning around and dumping hate speech on people in the reply room. Right, right, which is or obvious to everyone except hate, themselves. You know, raging in hatred at Donald Trump or finding some somebody w- w- just experiencing ecstasy when they actually have the opportunity to go right out there and hate someone. It Again, it's just like Victorian people who actually found themselves with an opportunity to have sex. <laughs> they're going overboard. And, I mean, eventually, if, if this keeps up, we're going to end up having, like, like the sexual revolution of the 1960s, we're going to have a revolution of hate, where people are going out there and having hate-ins and just actually letting out that, that natural desire to loathe the people who one feels deserves that. You, you, you may uh, remember uh, there's a part in Orwell's 1984 where they have the hour of hate every day where everyone yeah, has yeah, to yeah, just yeah. rage at the, yeah, the, the yeah, TV the, screen. Yeah, exactly. It's like, Trump, it's like when Trump's on TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when Trump goes on TV, that's our that's our Orwellian two minutes of hate, <laughs> and the and and the thing is, they adore Trump because the, he gives them the excuse to let out their hatred. Right, and and as was, and that, that that's why the Democrats are so frantically hoping that he'll run again. I mean, what are they? they they've got to be bereft without without the you know the 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 orange god there to pour, to pour out their hatred. Well, as you point out, and I, it was was always very clear to me. Also, Trump is the best thing that could have happened uh, to the establishment because it allows them to pretend that all of their crimes are the result of one man. When actually, since he didn't go to war, that's probably very far from the truth. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, the thing is, this is this is what usually happens in it, when you have a society like ours, an empire in decline. Mm-hmm. Um, one that's run by a you know in, a network of extremely wealthy families. I'm thinking here the late Roman Republic, for example. Um, you have people from the elite class who look at the situation and realize that their ticket to power 
is to speak for all the people who have been excluded. Um, Julius Caesar did that in his time. Trump's doing it now. Um, and yeah, I mean, you don't have to look back too far. In fact, 2015 will do it. Um, and you will find that back in the day, Donald Trump and the Clintons were best buds. Yeah, yeah. They were hanging out together and grinning at each other. And, and, and the thing is, Tr- Trump committed the unforgivable sin of speaking truth, it's literally speaking truth to power. Mm. And they will never forgive him for that. But they can't let go of him because he gives them the chance to, you know, to to let themselves feel the the, the hatred. That oh yeah, uh, it, uh, they, they love him so much they gave him free real estate in their heads forever, which is pretty good mm-hmm. for a oh, real yeah. estate yeah, tycoon. No, he's, 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 he he has his own his franchise, his orange franchise set up there. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I have I have money riding on the claim that when he dies. There will be people on the left who will be insisting that he cannot actually be dead. It must be some kind of sinister plot. He's going to it's pop a, it's back a Russian up. plot. You know, <laughs> exactly. He's it's, hiding it's, in yeah, Russia. The, the Russian the Russians have him on in suspended animation, and they'll trot him out again, or something. Um, I honestly say because you know, once he dies, and he's, he's you know he's getting on in years. Once once he once he ages out, once he dies, they're going to be bereft. What are they going to do without him? Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that, you know, shocked everyone after 2016 was that instead of having even a second of self-reflection, the Democratic Party doubled down on this the strategies that lost the election and that was simply denied that they actually had lost the election, which now is mm-hmm. isn't now leveled at Trump. Um, you know, both sides do that to each other. But um, oh, yeah. But I, I, do you still feel that's the case? I mean, like, I, I feel like the Democratic Party has at least been trying to make tiny efforts in the way of address in towards addressing or perhaps placating what you call the wage classes. I mean, they fronted um, John Fetterman, for instance, the kind of mm-hmm. idea of a working class Democratic senator. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you see that I, right now? I think I think some Democrats, they, they, some Democrats have have recognized that they've got to do something. And the, right now, the Democratic Party is really in the middle of, a, of an internal power struggle. It doesn't have the, I mean, uh, Biden was at best a compromise candidate, and they've got him propped up um, <clears throat> because they don't have anyone better, <laughs> and which, is really, which is really saying something rather sad about the state of the party. Um, they well, they would have had someone have, better if they hadn't, if they hadn't uh, betrayed Bernie Sanders, but... That's well, there's that, but yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, they, 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 they and the, the thing is, there have been several potential figures of that kind who have been driven out to the fringes. At this point, if you want to change things, you pretty much end up in the GOP, and so you end up with a lot of Democrats who are purely interested in maintaining the status quo. Some of them have the smarts to realize they've got to throw, you know, the occasional table scrap to the wage class, or down they go. Um, some of them don't seem to have a clue. Well, the other interesting. And, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, and so there's a lot of a lot of back and forth, a lot of struggle within the Democratic Party. We'll see how it turns out. Well, the other interesting thing on that note is is how the Republican Party has changed since Trump. I mean, they've mm-hmm. really tried to purge Trumpism. Now they're fronting uh, Meatball Ron DeSantis, as, as Trump calls him. And um, it's interesting. I was thinking about Ron DeSantis in this in this context. It's like you do point out, and people do forget this that one of the reasons that some people voted for Trump in 2016 is because 
the idea that maybe it would end or at least put on pause the endless brutal wars in the Middle East that we've been suffering for mm-hmm. the last 20 years. Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. on the other hand, was a lawyer at Guantanamo Bay. So no, you couldn't get that much, you couldn't get that much different. But so, so the Republican party in its own way, um, has very much, you know, on one side, I think really leaned hard into the, the Christo fascism that, uh, uh, Chris Hedges mm-hmm. always talks about, particularly, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, uh, women's rights and things like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. their demonization mm-hmm. of trans people. Uh, but they've also mm-hmm. tried to very much go back to George W. Bush business as usual with, with Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. What what you've got what you've got in the Republican Party is the party the party is you know um, in this in even more turmoil in some ways than the Democratic Party. You have on the one hand Trumpistas. You have people who have learned the lesson that Trump had to offer, which is that you can win elections by appealing to the wage class. Um, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, you know, coming out of nowhere to scoop the Virginia the Virginia governor's mansion um, in the teeth of an established Democratic machine. He did it by playing the Trump game. Playing the Trump card, if you want to say that. Um, on the other hand, you have people like DeSantis who are trying, who are basically trying to um, cash in on politically on um, a lot of people's discomfort with the way that the that um, transgender people have been picked up and used as a battering ram by the corporate system. Um, and you have um, others. You know, there's a lot of different people right now in the in the Republican Party who are trying this and trying that. And seeing which way things go. And meanwhile, there's a steady stream of people coming into the Republican Party from below who are going into um, the school boards, who are going into city councils and other grassroots races, who are going at it with a very Trumpian attitude. Mm. And that's that's likely to have a larger effect on politics in the long run than than what's going on on the, on, on the upper levels. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to ask you, since your your book kind of goes up to the 2020 election, and you mentioned mm-hmm. very briefly COVID and, and the rioting, um, but not even January mm-hmm. 6th. Um, right mm-hmm. now, I, I'm curious what you think of where things are at now, because it, it feels like a very strange time to me. No one is quite sure which way things are going to go. Uh, things mm-hmm. are in suspended animation with Biden. Um, it's it's a nice break. That's a, that's a good you know? description of, of Joe Biden. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Um, yeah, no. It's the thing is, it it is a very strange time. We have the aftermath of the of the lockdowns and the whole business around COVID. We have, um, a, you know, we, we've had the whole series. We had the, all of the um, rioting during Trump's era. We had the relatively mild January sixth business mm-hmm. in D.C., which has been, of course, turned into a huge huge cause celeb for the Democrats. Um, we have um, a lot of potential turmoil, a huge amount of strain. We have our government having committed an enormous amount of its prestige to uh, the situation in Ukraine, having already lost catastrophically in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so an enormous amount is up in the air right now. I think a lot of people know that. A lot of people are just kind of hanging back and not talking. Yeah, um, I, I, and, and keeping and, their powder and ex- exactly, Yeah. Exactly how that's going to, how things are going to play out um, as we move closer to the 2024 election, as we move, as as we see how things work out in Ukraine, as we see what the long term effects of the lockdowns and COVID and the vaccines and so on turn out to be, there's just way too many wild cards in this game. 
Yeah, and so uh, the, the last the last two years, um, I haven't. I for years I used to make annual predictions. Okay, and they they were pretty general, but I but I made annual annual predictions fairly often. Of course, you know, there's the business around Trump. The last two years, I haven't made annual predictions at all because I've been saying it is literally impossible to say how the how this frog is going to jump. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little disconcerting. I mean, well, let's just talk about COVID too, because I, I think, you know, you, mm-hmm. just in the context of the, the war between the, the salary, the salary class against the wage class. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if Trump was, was one level of that, I mean, COVID was practically a, a live fire war in the sense oh, yeah. that, you know, yeah. in California, where I was at the time, anyone who was of the wage class was denied the ability to work. While meanwhile, exactly. people of the salary class were working from home and buying houses it, out in nice areas exactly. where they could telecommute, yes. right? And, exactly. And if the, anyone spoke the, out the against whole, that, that was, they were, you know, tantamount to Nazis. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was very, I, I honestly think a lot of what dro- drove the whole lockdown business. Well, let me step back a bit. The idea of the locking, you lock down a society to control a virus like that, public health officials, until COVID came around, were saying, don't do it, don't do it. It's a lousy idea. It just causes human suffering, and it does nothing to slow the spread of the virus. We've, you know, this has been tried over and over again. Don't go there. And then they pivoted on a dime and started pushing these economically disastrous lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And you still find people, even though the lockdowns were shown very clearly not to work at all, even you know, if you compare the spread of COVID in states that locked down like California to states that didn't, there's no difference in terms of the, in terms of the speed of spread, exactly as um, public health officials had been saying up until that. I think what happened was that they were punishing the working class for voting for Trump. That's how it felt at the time. It That's really how it felt at the time. You know, we're going to show you, 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 you scum of the earth peasants. But, um, but it wasn't just the and, U.S. It was the whole world. It felt very much with Trump and Brexit. Mm-hmm. It was a punishing of the world yeah. for daring to rattle the the plan. Yeah. That's how it felt, yeah, at exactly. least. Yeah, for being being for 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 actually, you know, yeah, rattling the um, <clears throat> the penthouses of the wealthy, and to this day. Watch who's wearing a mask, who's still feeling, you know, nostalgic for lockdowns. And yes, there are, you can find websites where they're saying, we should still have lockdowns going on. I mean, people are saying that, you know, as though, you know, it's okay, who cares if the economy, quote, has a sad, unquote, we need to stop that virus. We're talking about a virus with a, what, two-tenths of one percent fatality rate? Well, that doesn't factor in long COVID and and non-fatal effects. No, that's... No, but it also doesn't. It also uh, doesn't include the effect, the effects that, or the recent studies that have shown that an enormous number of the deaths were caused by bacterial pneumonia caused by ventilators. Hmm. So there were there were problems on both sides. Is COVID a problem? Sure. I mean, I had it. I had it twice. Um, it wasn't a big deal either time. But then I'm in good health. Hmm. Um, I know people who were not in good health who who had a very rough go go of it, and I have um, one. Uh, a friend of a friend of a friend who died of it. Mm. But, you know, I am just old enough to remember the um, the Hong Kong flu in 1968. And plenty of people, there were people who died of that one too. And of course, you know, long tail flu happens and all these things. And we didn't shut society down and we didn't tear society apart. 
I would argue that maybe following an older, um, you know, the, the proven methods would have been better, except, you know, as we both said, it was a matter of, public, of punishing the working class. Well, I, it certainly felt that way. I mean, and there's also yeah. the, the, I mean, it also felt at the time like uh, a, a force of, I don't want to get into this too far, but it, 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 it felt, and I'm being careful to say it felt like rather than it was, because it did feel mm-hmm. like that at the time. Um, basically a, a means to keep people, you know, in, for instance, in California, everyone was locked down, but given mail-in ballots, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it definitely uh-huh. felt like it just, it felt like it's like, I'm sure you know that for that old Frank Zappa quote where he says, you know, at some point they're, you know, we're in this great dance, but at some point they're going to pull away the curtain and show the brick wall, uh, and have our backs against it. And, and that, that's what it uh-huh. felt like. It was just like it, the system had been pushed oh, yeah. to a point where it's just like, uh, no, actually we're going to institute, institute China style totalitarianism and um, openly rather than perhaps if we take your idea of the magician state, it's just like, okay, you Mm -hmm. got this flash of this big flash of, okay, when the magician state, when the soft power fails that, you know, the, the iron fist does come out. The iron fist comes out. Exactly. Yeah. And it did. It did. It was kind of, that was kind of a, kind of a mess. And the thing that fascinated me about the whole thing, is that the number of people who crumpled and changed their opinions to fit the the demands of the system? I mean, I knew an, an enormous number of people who were up until the whole COVID thing came around. They were suspicious of, of big corporations. They were suspicious of chemical medicine. They they used herbs. They did this that. You know, they they were not. They they were very much sort of. Um, Upper class, mildly rebellious, or upper middle class, mildly rebellious types. And then the COVID thing came out, and it was no, we must trust absolutely what Pfizer and, and you know Monsanto comes up with. We must absolutely believe what these officials tell us. Anything else is just wrongity wrong, wrong, wrong. And it was just weird. What do you attribute that really, to? Well, it was very disconcerting for me as well. Do you have any any theories on that? Oh, yeah. Um, I I am. It was like invasion I, of the body snatchers. Yeah, yeah. To some extent, I'm, I'm scratching my head over it to this day. Uh, to some extent, I had been watching beforehand how the the range of allowable dissent had been narrowing. I mean, you used to have a lot of people in the upper classes who were doing the yoga and doing and doing the, the alternative healthcare and things like that, and that had started being squeezed in. And so to, I, I wonder to some extent if it's that a lot of people in the upper middle class, a lot of people in the salary classes looked at the situation, realized that their privilege was at risk, and fell into line really fast in the wake of the whole Trump business. I don't know, though. It was, it was frankly really spooky. It did have this sort of invasion of the body snatchers. Um, I, my wife and I were making jokes about orbital mind control lasers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels like you that. Know, <laughs> sometimes it feels like that. And yeah, and people people who you would not have expected. And then there were the people who you who you would expect or who you would have expected to follow along who just said, No, I draw the line here. Yeah. And well, so I, it was a very interesting litmus test as to I think there's just a who certain... was willing to, who was willing to think for themselves when it mattered. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, I think there just really is a a herd. There is a herd mentality aspect of human beings. I mean, it's yeah. it not more yeah. complicated than that. It's it, when when the enough force is applied, you know, you go with the herd because yeah. you don't want to stick out from with, the herd. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you see, this really points to one of the really odd features of our of our society just now, which is that we have um, a point where certain kinds of imitation dissidents have become de rigueur. Say more about where, that. Yeah, um, where you know you're supposed to be a rebel, but you all have you all have to rebel in the same way. It's a kind of a kind of fake protest mentality, a kind of fake opposition to the status quo. Um, There's a meme I saw the other day that says, you know, if um, corporations are pushing your slogans, you're not part of the resistance. <laughs> yes, and that's very much the situation we're in right now. All these people who think of themselves as rebels against the evil empire when they're the empire. And yet they've been they've con- they, they 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 have convinced themselves that when something comes through the corporate media saying you should be angry about this because it's bad that buying into that and you know being angry on demand is some kind of of, of rebellion some kind of uh, being edgy it's not edgy at all it's obedience well, but. The- there is a really a lot of weird si- are into it. There's a very strange yeah. situation where because corporate America has embraced um predominantly uh, you know liberal values and talking points. Um mm-hmm. there's a, there's also I mean you talk a lot about a cl- class aspirations and how you know the the culture produces more salary level workers than can have jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. all obviously true in academia and I think there's just a mm-hmm. basic level where people know if they don't parrot talking points they're not going to have a job. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can, you know, yeah, there's think, many, many examples of that's that. That's, of course, especially, especially in academia. I'm, I'm, I have friends in uh, both, both present and, and retired um, academics. And, yeah, the level of groupthink and the level of obedience that's demanded to whatever the current thing happens to be, it's, it's very Orwellian. It's very oppressive. I guess when you're playing and, musical chairs over a tenure, that's uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, that. exactly. You've got to do exactly as you're told, or e- even if you have tenure, they can get rid of you these days. And so it's you know it's it's really it's really stifling. It's one of the reasons I'm very glad I I, I had I, I had been I, I was encouraged to go into an academic career. Um, I had um, when I was finishing up my bachelor's degree, I had I had some people in the history department who were interested in having me go on to a master's, and I decided against it because already, and this is in the early 1990s, already it was clear that if I had gone into academia, I could not have written the things I wanted to write. That's interesting. I, I made the same decision because uh, I wanted to be uh-huh. a, a renegade occult writer, <laughs> and it's, it worked <laughs> yeah. out much better than going into academia, academia funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, I ended up being able to write, uh, being able to write the things I wanted to write. And some of them are fairly, some of the things I've done are fairly scholarly. There's there's a couple of mm-hmm. things that I could have done as a dissertation, but you know, the, you make your choices. I I don't regret for a moment evading the just crushing conformity and obedience and fear that I see in so much of the academic scene these days. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You talk about you kind of get into transactional analysis, and and I think this is good mm-hmm. to talk about in con- in context of this. You talk about the rescue game. I wonder if you would uh, yeah. talk about that yeah. for the audience. Okay. 
Let's talk about transactional analysis. That was back in the 1960s and 1970s, you had the last hurrah of methods of psychology that weren't just about uh, drugs. Uh, The pharmaceutical industry had not yet finished taking over the psychiatric industry. And so you had um, quite a number of what were then called humanistic psychology movements. And transactional analysis was one of them. There's a lot to it, but it's basically, it's, frankly, more self-help than anything else, but it's a way to understand how your psyche works and how to stop doing things that make you miserable and start doing things that will, that will make you less miserable. But one of the things it talked about, and one of, one of the most famous books on the subject was, was Eric Burns' Games People Play, and it talks about interpersonal games. And now, this is not just like checkers and chess. We're talking every kind of structured set of behaviors that has a set of rules and a payoff can be understood as a game. And there are lots of them, and some of them are very, very predictable. There are functional games and there are dysfunctional games. The more um, the rules are covert, the more um, the whole thing becomes an abusive um, chasing your tail around or chasing someone else's tail around, um, the more it becomes a dysfunctional game. And one of the great dysfunctional games is the rescue game. There are three players in the re- there are three positions in the rescue game. You can have any number of players, um, and we, those are the victim, the um, I forget the word now that used for the um, the persecutor, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. There we go. The victim's job is to suffer. Okay. The persecutor's job is to make the victim suffer. The rescuer's job is to beat up on the persecutor and. Um, and, and sympathize with the victim. Not, please note, do anything to help the victim, but sympathize with the victim. So this is a rescue game. And different people play different roles. We've all met the perpetual victim, the person who is always going on at length about all these horrible things that are happening, and, and won't you please play this game and be my rescuer? Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who constantly play the persecutor game, although that's that, or the persecutor rule. That's not a very successful um, thing because your whole job there is to persecute someone for a little while and then get beaten up. And so you end up, as the game spirals out, with people being recruited into these roles, usually by a bunch of people who want to play, play the rescuer. Hmm. So they identify people as victims. You're a victim, and, and we're going to sympathize with you. We're not going to help you at all. But we're going to sympathize with you. And these people who you don't like are persecutors, and we're going to beat up on them. And it doesn't matter if the persecutors haven't done anything. You know, you identify them as persecutors, and then everything they do is a persecution. I'm sure we can all think of examples where literally, no matter what you do, it's a persecution. Um. I'll pull an example. I'll take the risk of pulling an example out of my own experience. Um, Among other things, I write fiction. And I like to write fiction with a lot of different characters from a lot of different backgrounds, including people of color. Okay. Now, I have been told, on the one hand, that for me to have characters who are people people of color is cultural appropriation. I should not be putting words into the mouths of people of color. It's for them to blah, blah. If I had left the people of color out, I would have been racist. Right, right. So whichever you do, you're the persecutor because you've been assigned that role. And so we end up with the absurd situation where, it, as, again, borrowing a metaphor from the book, um, a, a woman of color who makes a seven-figure salary working in New York as a, you know, in, in some big stock firm can claim to be persecuted by a white guy in West Virginia 
who is scraping by on $30,000 a year and desperately trying to keep his children fed. When the policies that she supports and the the investment decisions she makes are responsible for his poverty. And yet he's supposed to be the persecutor. She's the victim. I wonder, I think this is a great point. I I just wanted to, if I can just read one, one passage, one paragraph from your book that I I think just summed up so much of this. And it's this, the unspeakable truth that shaped the discourse of the pre-Trump era was that the good people, the morally virtuous people enthusiastically supported policies that plunged tens of millions of Americans into poverty and misery. In the usual fashion of aristocracies, the good people insisted that the policies that benefited them were the only morally thinkable options and that anyone who objected to them could only be motivated by deliberate evil. For those inside the self-referential bubble of elite culture, it all seems so straightforward. The sufferings of those people whose interests aligned with those of the privileged were all important and had to be addressed, while the sufferings of those who were being crushed by policies that benefited the privileged were their own fault and didn't matter anyway. Mm-hmm. That really and drew, the, drew a lot of things together. On the, on the one hand, that's standard for aristocracies. The word aristocracy literally is the power of the best. Aristocrats always think of themselves as the good people, the noble people, the virtuous people, so on and so forth. But in our time, um, that, that line of Kant, that line of propagandistic Kant, has become much more popular than usual among the privileged classes. You don't even talk about interests anymore. It's all about morality. You've got to spin everything as a, as a moral tale, usually drawing heavily on, um, in, in effect, it, it's Star Wars. It's all drawn from metaphors, covert metaphors from Star Wars. Somebody has to be identified as the, as the, as the Empire. Somebody has to be identified as the, the Rebel Alliance. And when... And even when the, the people who are supposedly the rebel alliance are the people who have all the power and wealth, and the evil empire consists of you know um, a modest number of working class guy you know, folks who are just trying to hand, just trying to get by. <laughs> it, but you you can you look at that and that that actually that actually extends in some really weird directions. Have you noticed how often? People in, on the left these days in America are totally incensed and outraged when the other side gets anything, scores any points, makes any gains. Well, I it's think that's true on both sides. It's become a zero-sum game, politics in general. Yeah. yeah. But, it's, but it's beyond that. It's not just that they're outraged. It's that they're shocked. I call it Stormtrooper Syndrome. If you remember your Star Wars movies, the Stormtroopers are there to fill the air with blaster fire, but it never hits anybody. Okay. So they literally have this idea the bad guys are not supposed to hit anybody. The bad guys are supposed to prance around and fire off their blasters, and then we get to blow up the Death Star. (laughs) And so this Stormtrooper Syndrome, this conviction that there's something unnatural about the other side ever winning anything, well, I think um, you know if you look at really gets in really gets in the way of their of, of even their ability to strategize. Go on. I would say the same thing about the right. Though. I mean, if you look at post twenty twenty, the kind of Tucker Carlson type discourse that there's the, 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 oh, the yeah. left is an existential threat and is uh, an evil that must be excised and is trying to turn everyone into a satanic transsexual or something like that. <laughs> uh, so this this you know that type of uh, uh, tapping into mm-hmm. into yeah. that, that happens yeah, on yeah. all sides. No, you, 
you're you're right that you're right that at this point at this point the moral discourse has become this is sort of metastatic moralizing discourse has become all, all but universal and to just get people to talk about okay who's profiting from this <laughs> good luck right well that's clearly by design i mean when it yeah. must be by design mhm yeah yeah yeah, it's very exhausting, and the the moral posturing, I think, is is something particularly <laughs> mm-hmm. that people who have done magic or even just psychedelics see through very clearly. But um, mm-hmm. it's and maybe there's something inherently American about it. But I remember uh, even even before the Ukraine war, this is not a pro Putin mm-hmm. comment, by the way, but uh, I would watch um, speeches by Putin. And he would come out and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it for geopolitical reasons. You may not mm-hmm. agree with it, but it's like this, you know, this is how we're looking at things. And these are the economic and political motivations behind our geopolitical actions. And it's like, wow, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> this is so refreshing. He's actually talking about his policies and, and exactly. what he's doing in a way that he's, ta- he, it's probably lies, but at least they're lies crafted for adults, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the thing, no, no politician tells the truth, you know. But, but Putin, unlike American um, politicians, is willing to talk about geopolitics. He may be right. he's presenting him from his point of view and from the point of view of his country. And he's spinning it to suit his own agenda and the agenda of his country. But when's the last time you saw anybody in the, the West say, well, no, we're tra- you know, the United States is trying to maintain its, ge- its geopolitical position of power. Here are our security needs. I would have so much Here more is- respect for them if they did that. I think a lot of people exactly. would. Just, just come and just exactly. tell us, that, you know, treat, treat people like adults. You know, we can handle it. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, no. It's all, got to, it's all got to be Lord of the Rings. All we have to do is get the ring to Mount Doom and, uh, you know, and the whole thing, the whole thing will go away. And of course it never does. Right. Well, maybe this um, is a good way. The, um, the, the Lord mm-hmm. of the, the Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was an absolutely favorite book of mine when I was young. Uh, but I think it's really done a lot of harm because the number of people who seem to fixate on finding some one thing that will solve all the problems, some ring they can throw into some mountain somewhere. Um, right. It, it does not help. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, just to, when, and I'd like to talk about the the more overt magical aspects of this. But you know, we saw, for instance, uh, uh, the alt right mocking uh, Harry Potter liberals, or uh, you know, mm-hmm. the liberal sides that reduce everything to being oh. like a, mm-hmm. a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's correct. You have, and we have all of these identical cookie cutter stories rehashing the same basic plot over and over again. No wonder the people who fill their minds with it literally can't think outside it. The world is a more interesting place, and it has more, and there's more interesting stuff going on in it. But try to find people who will actually grapple with that. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where even like at the beginning of the Ukraine war, people were saying, it's like, oh, the Ukrainians are like the Avengers, and Zelensky is like, you know, Captain America, even though he's Ukrainian or something like It's just like, it's, <laughs> but literally, you know, yeah. with no ironic fault. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's just so stupid. So, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, this, this, is, this is as dumb as a brick. 
the the real world is not that simplistic and not that simple minded. And when people approach the world as though it were just a bunch of kitty stories where there are bad people and there are good people and the good yeah. people are going to win, um, when you yeah. approach the world that way, you set yourself up for failure and misery and disaster. Well, you're not seeing reality that's at one all. Of the, that's one of the things I expect America to get a lot of in the years to come. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and it's always shocking when you travel outside the country and you interact with people who uh, do not live in that simplistic, you know, storybook yeah. universe that Americans live in. And uh, or yeah. e- even as basic as you go somewhere where people speak more than one language and that's just assumed, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Well, maybe this is a good place to segue into the the overt occult aspects because you talk a lot about the kind of um, the chans as well as, uh, and I thought you had some interesting mm-hmm. observations about that class wise um, in terms of the chans being filled with people who felt um, who people who are I, I think perhaps we share in common, and you even mentioned this in the book were um, uh, excluded by the the salary class for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Um, the, yeah, the, to, to, to get a sense of the chance, you have to start with the realization that most, um, you know, mo- most aristocratic systems like ours have a, a setup to produce more flunkies than they need. Okay. That way you can have the flunkies competing against each other for the limited number of, of um, well-paid flunky jobs. And um, and so you can you can weed out the ones who might have a single original thought in their lives or who might not be perfectly obedient. There's all kinds of advantages, but the problem is you always have this 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 sort of um, penumbra of also rands of people who either didn't make the cut or didn't tr- ended up especially the ones who chose not to try, mm-hmm. the ones who looked at the game and said this is yeah. rigged. I'm not going to yeah. do uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know that one. Yep. Um, and there are a lot of them these days. And since decisions made for the benefit of the privileged classes have seen to it that a very large number of such people, they have no access to jobs, they, have, they, they can't afford to rent a place of their own, they can't start independent lives, they end up in mom's basement as the, as the, you know, the running gag goes, and in many cases it's true. What are they going to do? They meet online and they talk. And they and their conversations are not necessarily going to support the status quo <laughs> at all. Right. And so we had in you know in in uh, in, in the run up to the, the European revolutions of 1848, they were meeting in coffee houses. Nowadays we have the internet, so they were meeting in image boards, of which um, 4chan and 8chan are among the most famous. But there are of course many others, mm-hmm. and they would talk about politics and they would create memes and. They and move further and further from the approved ideas of our time, embracing anything that would shock the existing order. And that's so. So, of course, when Donald Trump showed up, uh, he was he, he was heaven sent. He was perfect meme fodder for them. And a lot of people, a lot of the chancellors, a lot of people in the chance bailed into at least passive support of the Trump campaign. Many of them got fairly active in it quite early on. They were spreading pro-Trump memes. There were they were um, doing various other things to the you know everything that you can do from from the shelter of your mom's basement. Um, and then funny things started to happen. And that's the thing that that was the thing that made this whole business so fascinating. Um, the Ch- the Chans had adopted Pepe the Frog quite some time ago, 
uh, quite some time before this as their as their their mascot. You know, here we have this archetypal slacker fraud who's going frog who's going feels good man, and you know, just sitting around and and lacing away the day, and they they liked him, so they had adopted Pepe the frog, and then all these frog omens started popping up. And then there was the whole business with Keck, which is on the one hand the way you say uh, ha 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 in Korean, and that that ended up in some games. But also, it turns out to be the name of an ancient Egyptian frog god. And then you have um, various just one thing after another. And some somewhere in there, some some of these people got into magic. They got into originally chaos magic, and started practicing it for the benefit of the Trump campaign. And weird things happened one after another. And you know, I, I don't think it was so much that they made them happen, but it's one of these, one of these situations that Carl Jung is talking about, where an archetype was, was activated and they were swept up in it. And so you have all of these, you know, the, these young men mostly, um, with no prospects, but a lot of energy and a lot of spare time, throwing everything they had into, on the one hand, online support of Trump, and on the other hand, chaos magic uh, supporting Trump. And was that the deciding factor that, that caused Trump's un- improbable victory in 2016? No way to tell, but it might have had a role. Mm. Yeah, I watched... Now, the fa- go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was now, just going to say... Go ahead. I'm sorry. We're running. Go. Why don't you go ahead? Uh, just briefly. Um, yeah, I watched all that happened in happening in real time, and it was it was mm-hmm. uh, very unexpected. All of it, and it was it was intense, and all of that. Um, I did think it was it was fascinating sociologically in a way where you had the kind of you know the democratic ruling class at that time their self-image had been formed you know a lot of particularly in europe a lot of the people in power from that generation had been involved in the 1968 student protests the Mm -hmm. you know the baby boomer generation in in america so on the democratic side so often defines itself as having come out of the civil rights movements and uh, Mm -hmm. opposition to nixon and the vietnam war and things like that so it was hilarious to see these people who had been excluded um and told that they were worthless by that establishment, just picking up everything that that establishment deemed unacceptable and hurling, hurling it at them as a weapon. And mm-hmm. the response for oh, yeah. even the response to Trump's win, you know, the ridiculousness of Hillary Clinton the next day turning around and saying that she's now the head of the resistance. It's like Hillary Clinton, the butcher of Syria, really. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, but the, yeah. the, the lack of self-awareness, I think... Uh, you know that they yeah. left themselves open. They left their their balls dangling to be kicked. I think. <laughs> that, yeah, basically they did. And the the thing that struck me that makes me think that what was going on was not just that um, the the beads, uh, the centipede brigade, as they like, or the basement brigade, as they like to call themselves. Um, it wasn't just that they were really good at magic; it's that there was something moving through them, something affecting them. They tried to do the same thing repeatedly thereafter and didn't get the same results. There was a there, there was a very tightly organized attempt to use use the same magical methods to make Marine Le Pen win the presidency of France. She didn't win. They've tried several other things, um, and of course, we saw what happened in in the twenty twenty election. Um, and so, 
one of the things that you, one of the things you have to deal with when dealing with magic, and it's something that a lot of these sort of avant-garde magical practitioners don't, I think, really really grapple with as they need to, or as they should, is that magic involves dealing with non-human intelligences. It involves dealing with powers and purposes that are not limited to the inside of one of one human skull, or all human skulls collectively. The world of magic is a world where things happen not necessarily because some person, some human being, wanted to make them happen. And so you know, this is one of, the, one of the reasons that, again, in the book, I argued that what we saw here is what, what Jung would call you know, the manifestation of an archetype, that something had picked up and flowed through this movement of basement-dwelling you know, internet outcasts. And, and it had picked up and flowed through a lot of other people. Why didn't it do that in 2020? That's a fascinating question. But it's very clear that the process that was set in motion at that point is not over with yet. You know, we've got Trump running for president, for president again. We have many of the same issues being brought up in various ways. Um, the whole business with COVID has turned out to be... Um, rather a complicated one, and you know, there are various things still going on, and um, echoes from that that are still cascading through the economy. And you know, change is happening. It's a very weird time, and it's not a time in which we can expect an, a return to the, to the business as usual of the Obama years. Right. Or 2016. I definitely that that's a once that that was a fluke occurrence, I think. And I, you know, one of my feelings about it is, you know, a lot of, you know, as Austin Spare would have said, there's, you know, a, a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount of magical energy comes from taboos and breaking them. And mm-hmm. a lot of that was the chance in 2016. And once those are broken, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's basically like the system developed antibodies very slowly and not very good ones, but it did develop antibodies mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. But at the same time, there has been a there's a breach in the the breach in the wall of the system at this point. And while something like 2016 is unlikely to happen again, there are people moving through that breach. There are ideas moving through that breach. I reached a point. There was an article in Politico the other day talking about um, the spread the the rise of successful Republican candidates in New York State. Really? And well, that's yeah, surprising. but yeah, that's that's not the, that's not the thing that had my jaw on the floor. The thing that had my jaw on the floor is the fact that this political article talked openly about the fact that the Democratic Party is completely in the pockets of the very well-to-do. Hmm. That its interest that, that's, its that's out of the ordinary for issues. Politico. Yeah, and they're, they're admitting that the reason the Republicans are getting you know getting successful candidates in in Queens in Brooklyn. Hmm is because they're addressing the needs and interests of working-class people, which are being ignored by the Democrats. Yeah. You talk... <laughs> and yeah. So, so, yeah, so the, the, the wall of denial has, has had, you know, a large orange object flung through it. And, you know, we'll see how, we'll see how things go from here, but I have some hope that over the, over the years and, and perhaps decades to come, we're going to see... Um, the system forced to pay a little more attention to the um, to the needs of people outside the the bubble of privilege. One would hope. I mean, it, it, the ability of the system to not learn its lessons is uh, often very is comparable to oh, ability, oh, no. the ability of oh, individual no. No, people to not not learn their lesson or their lessons. Oh, oh yeah. No, the thing is, it is politics is like science; it progresses by heart attacks. <laughs> um, 
No, no, no. This, it's, it's been most scientific fields. It's, it's notorious. It doesn't. Science doesn't advance because new theories come out. Scientists, science advances because the generation of people who believe one theory dies out, and then a new generation comes in. In the same way, we have a lot of very elderly boomers who have a death grip on the political system in Washington D.C. and many states. And they have their ideas, and they are not going to let go of them. They have their policies and so on, but they're aging out. Um, we we all saw, you know, Diane Feinstein being mm. trotted around in her wheelchair. She looks horrible. Mm. Uh, people, I, I know people who are saying, you know, bringing her out there is like elder abuse. Oh, but, I say that I said that about Biden also, but he's still going. Yeah, exactly, Biden, yeah. and um, you know. Uh, there's, there's, they're not alone. There's a lot of very, very old people clinging to power um, long after their equivalents in early generations had done the gracious thing and stepped down. But they're clinging to power. You know, eventually the guy with the scythe is going gonna, is gonna to take them out. And when that happens, you're going to see a lot of change. Yeah, not necessarily for the best. Uh, no, not necessarily for the best. My guess is there's going to be a lot of squabbling and a yeah. lot of struggle. Yeah. But, you know, bit by bit. And again, as you, as you have um, school boards increasingly falling into the hands of, um, of Trumpistas. Uh-huh. Yeah. I li- like, uh-huh. Again, I live in Texas. It's pretty palpable. <laughs> it's exactly, pretty palpable yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, um, when, you know when, the, when the school boards and the city and the city councils and the county councils are ending up spawning a new crop of, of um, you know, Trump of Trumpist Republican um, small-scale politicians, that's where you're watching the sea change that will shape the politics of the next 50 years. Yeah. Just as that same change happening in the 60s and 70s has set in motion a, a process that is finally guttering out in our time. You use a, a phrase in this book, pseudomorphosis. I wonder if you, if you would talk about that. Yeah. One of the things I borrowed from Oswald Spengler. You d- yes. People do not like to talk about Oswald Spengler. I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about Spengler. I've, I've, I've read his book. During, yeah, yeah. No, I, Oswald Spengler was one of the favorite writers of the Beat Poets. <laughs> They used to sit around, at, you know, in, in, in the dining room late at night and, you know, um, puffing on pipes and, um, and read chunks of Spengler to each other. But Spengler argued that, that civilizations have a life cycle. Mm-hmm. And they go through this life cycle in a fairly predictable fashion. And now he talked about pseudomorphosis as something that happens in the early years of a civilization when it more or less copies the successful older civilizations of its area, the way that, um, you know, medieval Europe was in some ways a, a, a third-rate copy of the Muslim world. Yeah. Um, you do, people do not like to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, very true. Um, and, and so, you know, you have these pseudomorphoses. Um, the, the Renaissance was most. Spengler didn't mention this, but most civilizations go through two pseudomorphoses before they they, they actually figure out what they are. So um, our civilization had the one pseudomorphosis from um, you know from the from the Islamic world. Then we had the Renaissance, where it adopted a second pseudomorphosis from the classical world. And then in the conflict between those, we have the development of. And of a unique civilization in Europe and the European diaspora around the world, um, which now is, you know, which, which peaked around 1900 and is now in its waning period. But pseudomorphosis happens more generally. Basically, the idea is that a movement that has not yet really found its voice and its direction 
will take over forms from some older thing. What's going on with the Republican Party is a good example. You have this this uh, Trumpista movement. You have this populist conservative, radical conservatives. That's supposed to be unthinkable, but it exists. You have this movement. It's flowing into the form of the GOP because that's the available. That's the form that's available to it right now. And so it will fill that form and make use of it and eventually outgrow it. And the GOP will split open, you know, like uh, like, like the the outer carapace of an insect when it sheds its when it sheds one, you know, wheel out of it like a snake shedding its skin. That's the way these things happen. And so in every social change, you've got to watch, in the early days, you've got to watch for the pseudomorphoses because these are things that are borrowed and will be, will be sloughed off in due time. Hmm. And so you would attribute, for instance, um, the, the Trump movement's fixation on traditionalism to that, maybe? Well, the, tradition, the whole traditionalist thing is, is a complicated mess. Because on the <laughs> one hand, you've got... Um, religious conservatives who have kind of borrowed traditionalism as as a as as an intellectual club because nobody buys their buys into their theology anymore. Mm-hmm. You also have people of um, Keck worshiper style who love traditionalism because you can get anybody on the left absolutely incandescent with rage by waving it in their face. Right. Then you have people who actually who are actually into traditionalism for because they're traditionalists, <laughs> and so the, yeah, so there's this tangled mess where Rene Guénon and and you know and the, and the rest of them are being picked up and used as footballs <laughs> in one scrimmage after yeah. another, and um, you know it's probably probably. It's it's a kindness to them that that Genon et al are no longer alive, as I think they would be rather taken aback by the use being made of them. Right? Yeah, certainly. Um, the fi- the fixation on Evola out of nowhere was very unexpected. Oh yeah, very unexpected. Oh, and the, the, it's like Julius yeah, Evola, Julie, the most obscure occult writer, <laughs> suddenly oh, yeah, is no, Julie, being yeah, exactly. w- w- waved around in the White House by Bannon. Exactly, Evola. Nobody talked about Evola. I mean, Evola was an was an interesting cat. His stuff is worth reading, although not frankly worth agreeing with. <laughs> but um, but everybody should read. Everybody should read at least once a month something they absolutely tremendously disagree with, and learn to understand it. Mm. Because that's the only way you're going to actually, you know, figure out how to respond to it constructively. Um, and, you know, I take that both ways. I would love to see a lot of the conservatives these days actually sit down with Karl Marx's book, Capital. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sit down, read it, think their way through it, understand it. Then when you start ranting about communism, you actually know what you're talking about. Right, right. Yeah, no, particularly... I mean, the people the, don't. Particularly the right in America has has been reduced to like a very myopic set of like out of four talking points, maybe three at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. just repeated and, as articles but, of faith. One, one, one of the sad things that we've seen in recent years is the collapse of the left to a very similar yeah. sort of intellectual uh, state of intellectual paralysis. But so, so to, so Evola was picked up, I think partly because he's so shocking. I mean, the guy was literally a Nazi, uh, you know, as in, as in, you know, um, served in the SS, during the war. And, and also said um, they, they weren't fascist enough for him. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he, he condemned Mussolini <laughs> because Mussolini wasn't fascist Too, enough. Right, right, right. Um, exactly. The guy was, the, you know, if you want somebody 
to cause, uh, you know, to, to cause absolute acute indigestion among everybody to the less of a till of a hun. <laughs> um, Julius Evola is your guy. Yeah. But at the same time, Evola was, you know, however, however many screws he had loose, the guy could write. And he ha- he raises even though you know his his interpretations are flawed. I am not a fan, but he's worth wrestling with. He challenges you to think. I think it's he very was capable of. You know, he was capable of thinking, and he he is worth try- grappling with. So even you know, even if your your response after finishing the book is to throw it across the room you will understand more than you did when you went in. Yeah, I think part of, at least in my view, training yourself to think for yourself, uh, mm-hmm. a big part of that is, you know, there's a lot of value in finding the most extreme possible positions mm-hmm. On, mm-hmm. on anything, mm-hmm. for, on any side of the political spectrum and engaging mm-hmm. with that. Because that's never, oh, yeah. that's never, you know, while those things have tremendous, tremendous shadow influence on the center, they'll never mm-hmm. be picked up by the center. But they mm-hmm. influence the center by simply by putting up flagpost uh, where they yeah. are. Oh yeah, and if you can, and if you can grapple with them, the thing is, th- there are people who are way out on the fringes who are just dumb. You get a lot of <laughs> oh, there's a, a lot of the racial and the anti-Semitic ranting that you'll find. There's just, just it's it's intellectually vacuous. Right. Evola is not vacuous, not at all. He had a, he had an extremely quick mind. He had, was extremely well informed about many traditions of esotericism and mysticism, and so he's he is there. There's a serious mind there to to work with and to think to to kind of challenge you. So yeah. that's one of the reasons that that I tend to I think he was picked up precisely because so many people on the right were so desperately tired of empty headed vacuous ranting which right. is so much of what passes for political thought these days right 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 well um there's something to touch on there with evola um and that on both sides of the political spectrum which is the, col- the collapse of the myth of progress and mm-hmm. Evola, and Evola <laughs> oh, comes do, at that. You do want to talk. You do want to touch third rails tonight. To oh, oh, yeah. No, so. I'm I'm happy to. Um, you know, a lot of Evola's ideas, like the recension of the of the castes and things like this. I mean, it's, the, traditionally, Ganon and Evola specifically, the power of the shock behind them is that they reverse mm-hmm. time and mm-hmm. say that we're we're degenerating rather than progressing. So what that you mm-hmm. know that's mm-hmm. clearly neither of neither is true. The world is way more complex than any of this linear stuff. Thank you. But mm-hmm. to 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 posit that as a intellectual uh, dynamite against the prevailing it's it simply mm-hmm. uh, if anything else it demonstrates the blind spots of of uh, so much thinking. Yeah. yeah. You know, whether or not you you know, whether or not you want to accept you know, uh, the, Genon's thesis in the reign of quantity, the idea that we have, we have descended into, we have regressed into our modern state rather than progressed into it. It's very worth challenging yourself by reading him. I found it very challenging for sure. Yeah. 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 No, he's, and, and Genon, yeah, Genon is no slouch intellectually. He mm-hmm. his, um, I think he's wrong. I think he's stunningly wrong, but in, but I, I also, of course, think that the people, you know, the, the, the um, oh, the various, um, pro, um, yes, we're progressing. Things are getting better and better every day in every way. We are getting better and better. All that drill <laughs> is just as wrong. And um, 
yeah, if you put the two of them together, maybe you can maybe you can notice that they're both stuck on a linear, a very simplistic linear notion of history, which history itself does not support. It's interesting because. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Um, when I uh, I was first encountered Ganon, and then and then uh, I mean I'd known of Evola forever, but he was just irrelevant mm-hmm. to the conversation for so long. <laughs> um, you know, reading that stuff during the Trump administration, I was also finishing a book on John D, and it went hand in hand with me in my mind with John D's or really the Renaissance Hermeticism's core idea of time is somehow time is running in reverse. It needs to be turned around and returned to the to the Garden of Eden to the the Genesis point, and we're losing connection with God over time. That's a profoundly challenging attitude to. All of modernity. I mean, even with and and even with Evola. I mean, you get parts in Evola where he's saying science is a degeneration from prior understandings of of mm-hmm. uh, the world. I mean, that's something that's impossible for a chat. Uh, you know, is is basically impossible for any well reasoned person to swallow. But it's valuable in the sense that it's it just it rattles something in your brain that you thought was mm-hmm. uh, inviolable. Mm-hmm. Well. If, and I would point out that um, what Evola is saying is an exaggeration and a distortion of something that actually has some truth to it. Because, you know, we have this, science is, you know, science is a narrowing. Science gets its depths by becoming narrow, by focusing on a very narrow range of human phenomena, the ones that we call material, matter and things caused by matter and energy. It focuses on a very narrow range of explanations. It goes very deep with those. It gains a great deal. But you shed a lot of other ways of understanding the world. There have been some really interesting, there has been some really interesting work over the last 30, 40 years um, by people who are in contact with, for example, Native American worldviews, pointing out that you can actually construct a totally clear, meaningful, accurate ontology understanding of the world based on Native American tradition has nothing in common with science. Notably, it treats everything as a person. Mm. And we say, well, yeah, but it isn't. Now, notice the whole question of whether something is a person is much more complex than it looks. We could get onto a lot of tangents here, but the thing that I think, the the takeaway from from Evola's rant is that science was a trade-off. We gained things, but we lost things. We, what we gained in depth, we lost in breadth. We lost in, 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 the, in ultimately the wholeness of human experience to really focus intently on this one narrow thing, focus the, yeah. the energies of our entire civilization on this one set of, of inquiries. Yeah, Austin Spare made a fairly yeah, similar yeah. Uh, made a fairly somewhat similar point at one point where he said that every technological advance of humanity, whenever we create technology to do something for us, we also lose the faculty to do it for ourselves. And that atrophies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about that for a long time. Yeah, and that's 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 a great example. That's a great example. Um, and yeah, the thing is everything is a trade off like that. 
now down the road, one one of the projects that I have, I currently have in uh, underway is a discussion of of this same process by way of talking about the 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 sort of the idea of the disenchantment of the world that Max Weber introduced, and looking at okay, you know, you and I and a great many other people practice magic and are very familiar with occultism, and in what sense is the world disenchanted when it's crawling with occultists? Mm. There was there was a fascinating book called by by Jason Josephson Storm a few years ago um, called The Myth of Disenchantment, where he goes mm. after the entire concept of the disenchantment of the world Interesting. and where it came from and how it is in fact not a simple statement of fact but an ideology. And so, but that's, where, that, where does that he say that? It, future. Where, where did he say that that yeah. came from? Oh, uh, Max, Max Weber. I mean, it had it had older roots, but Max, Max Weber was part. He was uh, connected to the Frankfurt Circle, the same people who invented critical theory that's mm-hmm. become such a, such a point of fuss in modern American society. And Weber knew a lot of occultists. He ran with people in the in the cosmic circle of, of Stefan Georga and people like that, and so it was very clear that he what he was saying is well we ought to be disenchanted. Uh, there's too much. There's too much magic is what he was saying. There's too much. Yeah. There's too much. Yeah. There's too much. I, I agree we, with we that to, sometimes. We, <laughs> yeah. We ought to be disenchanted. We. You know. This is what the world ought to be like. It, you know. It pretend as with so much in the social science, it pretends to be a description. It's actually a prescription. Interesting. And that's, that's, you find that all over the place. But that's, that's, that's kind of neither here nor there. But it, it bears on this in that the entire idea that the development of a society over time is a deepening but a narrowing. It involves trade-offs. There are losses as well as gains. And, and so it's not – so the, the entire concept of progress, the entire rhetoric and religion of progress, because, of course, progress is the um, – it is, it is the established religion of our time. People believe in progress the way that medieval peasants believed in the wonder-working bones of St. Swithin. Right. The progress will save us. It's our God. We've got, you know, we're going to the stars. No, we're not. Come on. We, we already know that. Um, the last people who set foot on the moon are going to be dead from old age and not too, and not too long. We did our space program. We found out that you, well, one of the things that nobody likes to talk about is the reason we didn't go on to Mars. Space outside the Van Allen belt is full of hard radiation. Look it up. The sun is a major source of radiation. We're not going to the stars. We're not even going to the solar system. This world is the one we've got. And, but nobody can deal with that. No, or very few people can deal with that. It's because progress, we have this myth of progress. We have these mythological images borrowed from 1930s science fiction still stuck sideways in our brains, convincing us that we've got to, we've got to do this, um, this kind of technological um, fakery of the rapture where we're lifted up from the world into you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, airless... Uh, gra- gravitation for equivalent of heaven. I, I'm not so sure that people are boundlessly optimistic in progress anymore. I mean, I think certainly the rate of technological advance has slowed down. People get sick of mm. there's nothing, you know, the last major thing I, you probably saw yesterday, Apple announced augmented reality goggles and, <laughs> and that's their biggest uh, didn't, thing. Didn't, didn't Google try that a little while ago? Yeah, and the, no, well these are much more advanced, but they're essentially... <laughs> 
<laughs> you can live in you can live in an, in an alternate reality. You can see the world and and but they're thirty five hundred dollars and you can live in your own bubble forever now. And this is their <laughs> first major product since the iPhone. But you know, computers but, uh, and iPhones come out every year and they're marginally faster, but not really. And uh-huh. um, for anything but heavy work workflow. Um, and so like, for instance, even taking Apple as, as a company, I mean, people really used to buy into Apple as in the way that perhaps Elon wanted people to buy into Tesla, which is what if you buy into this company, you're buying into progress, you're buying into the future. But I yeah. think that confidence has shaken quite a bit. For instance, last year, we saw the, you know, the much hyped metaverse was going to be the next big thing. <laughs> and nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. No. So. It was just, yeah, exactly. I think, well, and, and the thing is, a lot of things have started flowing in reverse like that. I noted, for example, that um, vinyl records mm. are, on the, are in the Ascendant. Those are, that's, um, last year, more vinyl records were sold than CDs. That's interesting. Well, nobody really buys CDs anymore. I mean, but if you compare yeah, well, it to yeah, streaming, but, more, but, yeah. but yeah, but the thing is, a lot of people are buying vinyl nowadays. That's that's the a lot of their you know various musical groups are only issuing things on vinyl. Among other things, it's less easy to pirate. Yeah. Um, print books. I remember when print books were supposed to be goners. <laughs> right. That didn't happen. You know, it was all going to be eBooks, and right. now, well, you know, the, the, yeah, you know, eBooks have have, have developed a niche. But they have a niche. You know, I think that especially after lockdown and um, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to be on a computer on Zoom all day long Uh, (laughs) because people were forced. People were forced to live in virtual reality, at least for a brief period of time. And now people. Yeah, it does. (laughs) But I wrote down when I was was reading the section of your book, I wrote down a phrase in the margins. If space closes, time reverses, meaning if progress fails to go forward into the future, well, then there's going to be a reversal uh-huh. in it. In it. Um, mm-hmm. This desire well, to go back and see what went wrong, because we only have one planet yeah. and, and so many finite resources. Exactly. Exactly. Actually, one of, one of, my, one of my other books, which will be um, reprinted by a new publisher next year, is called Retrotopia. <laughs> and it's talking about, it's using the, 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 you know, the sort of fictional framing of a of uh, you know a post collapse of the United States, and here's one of the republics has gone in this direction. What about shifting into reverse on some things? What about looking at the thing, going back to things that actually worked in place of the latest, most progressive piece of junk that doesn't work? Mm. And yeah. so it was. It was there. To, it was there to raise questions, and it has certainly succeeded in doing that. It's sold more than any of my other novels. Interesting. Um, not because I'm saying we ought to go back, but because I'm saying maybe we should instead of instead of having this fixed fantasy of progress where we're going to go chugging forward forever when we're not. Instead of saying that the newest, we have to adopt the newest thing, even if it's garbage. We look at the past as a resource, and we say, okay, which, you know, between the current technology or even future technologies and the technologies that have existed, which of these actually does a better job? Hmm. Because it's often not the latest thing. The other question is, what job are we actually trying to do here, and why should we be doing and this job? A, yeah, yeah, there's that. Yeah, or should we actually be doing this job? And, you know, and, of course, it's going to be different for every, every job. There's no one fixed answer. But once one of the things that I noticed years ago when I, you know, when I would mention that, for example, I've never owned a television in my adult life, people get freaky about that. <laughs> people get 
really freaky about that. You get a lot of people who are just going to sit you down and, and angrily insist that you've got to, you know, here's this very important program. You've got to have a television so you can watch it. Right. I mean, I had, I had one person yelling at me, you're living in a dream world. I mean, which of us is the opposite? At, <laughs> staring at, you know, staring at this, these colored blobs on a screen for four to six hours a day. Right. <laughs> funny but the one of the great taboos of our of our time is technological toy technological choice <clears throat> you're not supposed to choose which technologies you use you're supposed to accept right, whatever right, right, the corporate right. system shoves at you and you know oh you can choose between the latest models but don't you dare say no i don't want any of those i'm going to use a landline instead right, right. Uh, i'm talking on a landline right now it has better sound quality it sounds than, great um yeah, than, than any um, than cell phones do. And I can leave it at home and go for a walk and not be harassed <laughs> while I'm enjoying the day. I hate phones. Um, I hate phones. They're one of the worst things to happen to, to people, I think. Yeah. I, I've, got a, I've, I've got a novel just out recently, and one of the climactic moments in the thing is where the main character takes the uh, cell phone with which her mother has been bombarding her with uh, denunciations daily and breaks it in half and drops it into the ocean. Hmm. <laughs> it's an option. It is. It yeah. is. Landlines still exist. Um, Landlines still exist. I'm, I, I, I'm sitting here talking to you on one to prove it. <laughs> Very good. Well, I want to go back to Spangler and magic. Um, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, something that occurred to me and maybe just talk about the magical subculture itself, you know, with Spangler, we, we talk about like Faustian civilization and it's the magic that comes out of the Faustian worldview is pretty self-explanatory. I think we all mm -hmm. understand that. But my question mm -hmm. is what, you know, maybe as a microcosm, let's just take the magical subculture itself. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is the magic of, uh, I mean, forgive me, but the magic of the future going to look like with all of these things in play? How are these? Cause, because in my opinion, all of these social mm -hmm. pressures and forces get expressed within the magical culture first, mm -hmm. way before oh, they yeah. trickle down to the art world by far. <laughs> so you can see yeah, things first yeah. in the, in the, in, and, and that was true mm -hmm. in 2016. So, oh yeah. It was true. It, it was true in sixteen sixteen. Um, yeah, um, that's that's a very good point. Well, the magic of the future. Well, the, there are two major changes that are going on right now that are going to play out extensively in the in the future of the magical community in the Western world. The first is the decline and fall of neo paganism. Hmm. Um, we have seen spiritualism rose and fell, theosophy rose and fell. Now we're seeing neo paganism rise. Neo, neo paganism is rapidly falling at this point. Um, 10, 15 years ago, most neighborhoods in, in any in a city of any size had a Wicca shop in it. You won't find most of those anymore. Sales of books and products for neo-pagan audiences have dropped steadily. Many long-time festivals have shut down permanently or are contracted to a tiny portion. And this was happening before the shutdowns uh, around COVID. The neo-pagan thing has had its day. And of course, a lot of the reason why it did so is that, you know, as with everything, it started out being brash and young and rebellious, and then it turned into a bunch of stodgy old people um, saying, you know, you kids get off my lawn. Well, I would say that the, and, the, the old yeah. neo-paganism neo of that type may be, may be um, slowing I think, down. I think you're going to see... 
I think you're going to see Wicca, uh, Wicca become the same kind of presence the Theosophy is now. There are still Theosophical lodges here and there. I don't know about I don't know about that because although Wicca itself I, may that may happen to Wicca itself. I mean, the idea of witchcraft is is almost mainstream de facto expected among young women now. I mean, yes, it's huge, and that's and and that's why it's going away because it's become it's become predictable. It's, okay. you know, yes, it has become, it has become huge. It has become very widespread. It has become accepted. It no longer provides young people with the basic requirement of something like this, which is some way to shock your mom. <laughs> right, right. Um, I've thought for a long time that yeah, that's the, it, one of the most important parts yeah, about magic. You know, it's it, one of the it's, most important. It's not just, if you don't I, I, I would caveat, it's not just a place that, to shock your mom. It's a place that's so confusing that your parents can't follow you there. Exactly. exactly. You've got to have, but you, but it's got to be shocking as well as confusing. And at this point, you know, well, well, mom, I've decided to take up Wicca. Well, that's nice, dear. What a crushing thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, right. so, um, no, I, I see it. I, you know, it, and you know, its influence is going to continue sort of filtering outwards in various directions. You're going to see a lot of customs and a lot of ideas that have been part of the sort of neo-pagan scene spreading more broadly. There are some offshoots of it, um, that I think will endure for the long run. I'm expecting to see, um, heathenry, for example, Norse, yeah. Norse paganism yeah. as an enduring presence. It really, it has established an independent identity. It is its own thing. We'll see what happens, but I think it's going places but on the but the sort of the sort of um generic um starhawk slash scott <laughs> cunningham um pop pop culture wicca um dead to the world i i don't it's it's declining fast and i don't expect to see it as a significant force in the occult community for much longer i mean it was interesting Second, in in 2016 i mean like by the time of the hillary campaign like all of that stuff had been completely recapitulated by the mainstream there was nothing in any of that exactly. that was shocking exactly. or or exactly. even left field anymore i mean all of that is mainstream exactly. liberalism now all of that's totally mainstream the thing that the the the, the other factor which i which is um, of immense importance is the number of classical magical texts that are being translated and put into circulation nowadays. There have always been a few. Um, you know, there have been always a little bit of Gnosticism there, a little bit, you know, a few, a grimoire or two there. You could always get copies of the fifth and sixth books of Moses or what have you. But at this point, at this point, we've got the most amazing things in circulation. What, what, um, what, what got, do you what do you rate, for example? Um, well, I'm going to be I'm I'm going to kind of um, preen myself a little bit and talk about the Picatrix. Okay. Which that book has actually made me more that that book project has made me more money than anything else I've I've written, much less co-written. <laughs> it sells steadily. It sells an enormous number of copies. Everybody wants yeah, there's a, a big deal. Picatrix. And there's a huge number of people who are practicing that kind of 10th century medieval astrological magic. And some of them are really good at it. Hmm. That was something nobody was doing, you know, 20 years ago. Um, one that I'm really excited about is the, the um, you're, you're going to be seeing that. Uh, again, I think this is, ne- this is slated for next year. I have nothing more to do with it but writing a blurb. But the notary art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's an interesting again. one, right? That's the one that's all yeah. about developing your memory so that you can yeah. learn things Solomonic, faster. Yeah, Solomonic angel magic designed to help you learn things. Yeah, I saw. I found that recently. I was like, well, this is this is interesting. <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, what do you think of that traditions, one? Yeah, Inner Traditions is coming out with a new, um, a, a really nice new 
translation of the medieval text with all of the note, all of the diagrams and so on. Hmm. And very useful and detailed, and it's, um, I, I, am, I am hyped. <laughs> this was something, 30 years ago, I was desperately scrambling around trying to find some source for this, and of course I couldn't in those days. Um, we did not yet have the kind of internet access that allowed you know, access to stuff in European libraries. And so, but, but now, now it's in print. Now anybody can learn this kind of stuff. Interesting. Um, some of the older traditions of astrology are all over the place these days. And I could go on for a week. There's a lot of classic magic that was completely unavailable and is now readily available. We're going to see that setting off explosions and blasts and shockwaves. Yeah. Um, I think for many decades to come, as people combine that with existing magical traditions or create new magical traditions based on them, sure. it'll go some really interesting places. Yeah, I was going to so ask, have, just in that light, what, what, what you think about what's going to happen with like the kind of like the traditional orders, I mean, Golden Dawn, Thelema, some of which mm -hmm. are, well, all, both of which are synthetic uh, works based on mm -hmm. material that was available at the time. Um, mm -hmm. the, yeah, I can't, I can't speak to the OTO because I've never, and, and Thelema generally is not my, not my cup of tea at all. Mm -hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a Crowley fan. But in terms of the Golden Dawn system, um, it's, it's going to be a niche market, but it has, you know, it may be, it may be a syncretic system, and indeed it is. It may have been put together with what was available in 18, you know, 1870, whatever, and 1887, try that again. Um, and it is, but it works. Mm -hmm. If you actually take the whole system and pursue it as it was given, you can get remarkable results. I certainly did. Mm. And so my guess is that the Golden Dawn and systems deriving from it, so deriving from it as a, as a starting point, they're likely to have a long history. They're not going to be the be-all and end-all. And I suspect that there's going to be much more, it's going to be much more a matter of individuals than of, of lodges and orders. Yeah, I think that's incontrovertible. Um, at, least, at least for the for the for the time being, the you know the the sort of and this this hurts because I I really wanted to see the old lodge system revived and and put back into general use and made made vigorous because it was it has a lot of advantages, but the attempts to do that have not really been that successful. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know we're heading into a period where it's going to be a lot of individual uh, individual wizards. Now Spengler is relevant here because if he's right and we are in the sort of diminuendo phase of Western civilization, uh, modern industrial civilization, this is the period where the great magics of the Dark Ages to come are going to be shaped. You know, it was it's interesting to think of you, uh, shaping the dark, the magic of the dark ages to come from grimoires from the prior dark ages. Uh, is that, I don't know exactly. if that's good or I don't know if that's good or oh, not. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's, absolutely, that's absolutely standard. Um, in in the twilight years of the of, of the Roman world, you had a lot of Neoplatonist sorcerers who were drawing material from Pythagoras and from all these other very early Greek thinkers and putting it together into magical syntheses, along with a lot of stuff from other cultures that became the magic of the Middle Ages. And so there's this there's this tendency, you know, you have you have an age of you have an age of magic and then you have an age of reason. Then the age of reason ends up disproving itself in one way or another, and you have another age of magic. Hmm. And so and you know, the magic each age of magic tends to borrow a lot from the previous ones, from any other ones that it can find, and it all sort of pours in together and then we away you go through the dark ages. Hmm. Just just And so what we're seeing is the pre is the preparatory process whereby that is coming into being got it just out of just out of curiosity 
uh, just as a slight tangent, what was your what is your critique of Crowley? I'm just curious. Um, Crowley was the 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 problem with Crowley is that he was much less of a big deal than he looked in the 1960s. There were a lot of figures who were doing the sex magic thing. There were a lot of figures who were doing the sort of um, you know d- d- development of the will. Uh, Crowley happened to. Um, catch the interest of the hippie generation. Largely because um, on, on the one hand, Greedy McMurtry picking up the OTO and, and developing it into a large-scale organization, partly because of the republication of a number of his works, and, and the confessions especially, caught the attention of the hippies, and they recognized him as one of them, basically. Hmm. Um, he... I mean, the, 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 on the sort of most basic level, if you start out life rich and talented and handsome, and socially well-connected, and you end it as a burnt-out heroin addict with an estate worth 14 shillings in a small-town nursing home. And with a name that you have made a laughing, you personally made a laughing stock on three continents. If that's the result of a life in magic, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. <laughs> I, you know, um, whatever you think of Crowley, he, you know, if, if, if he was the best that the New Eon could do, I'm not too impressed with Rahul Cruitt. Well, the New, um, New Eon's got 2,000 years to <laughs> produce you know, and, people. And, well, yeah, if, yeah if, if, if in fact his... No, no, right. I, I think as it, as it happens, I think he's completely... He, he misunderstood what an eon is. If you, if you think sure. back to your Gnostics, an eon is not a period of time. An eon is, eternal, is an eternal spiritual possibility. Mm-hmm. And... Every magus speaks the word of his eon, whatever, whichever, whichever one of these basic principles happens to be the one that guides him. It probably, yeah, it was it was Salema, his, his, the the, um, the eon of of will was was the thing that he that, that drove and guided him for good and for good or ill. But all the eons are always available all the time, and mm, I each agree of with us that. Can, I agree with that. Can yeah. choose. Yeah, can choose which which of these eons works for us, which works with us, which one calls to us. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. So, yeah, and so, so you know, um, you know, he's. I, I'm probably gonna have to go back and reread him sometime, especially now that all of his work is out of copyright. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff sloshing around that was, you know, private private property, of the OTO, and so on. So I can get a more complete idea of his of um, you know his his work as a whole, but. I read a lot of his stuff back in the day because that's what you could get. Mm. And partly the personality turned me off. He came across as a jerk. And partly I was going, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I quite understand you want to get your rocks off, but, you know, there is more to do here. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I was curious if, if you also, if you had a, a technical critique um, coming from a um, Golden Dawn perspective of his offshoot version um, of it. No, the thing, the thing is, his stuff, his stuff was very, especially, you know, his stuff was very standard Golden Dawn. Right, right, very right. Very standard Golden Dawn. He, 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 Crowley was much less original than he wanted to think. And one of the advantages of that is that his, you know, his material was a decent source. Um, I'm thinking uh, Liber O, Manus Sagittae, mm-hmm. in particular, is, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a good basic source for Golden Dawn magic. I used it myself back in the day. Mm-hmm. But... Um, 
it's this, you know, he, he sort of, he sort of larded it with all of this, um, all of this other stuff <laughs> that was mostly right. a product of his personality. Right. And right. Uh, frankly, if I'm, if I'm going to get into a golden non offshoot dissident with a hang up about sex, I'm probably going to do Dion Fortune instead <laughs> because I like a writing style better. <laughs> Interesting. Um, we never touched on the magic of the resistance. And, and since we're having the magic conversation, we, we, I'm, I'm we curious. Should, we, should, we should talk about that. The thing that, that there was, so, you know, you had this magic resistance boiling up and being very heavily marketed and very heavily pushed by lots of people. And the things that I noticed about it were, first, that these spells were incredibly simplistic. Absolute bunny slope level um, pop culture magic. Mm-hmm. Secondly, they were not very well designed. Um, many of them had, um, just, you know, if you, if you look, if you take them apart and examine how they work, they don't. And then the other thing is that for some reason, the people who were doing them were obsessed with include a lot of the people who wrote these rituals were obsessed with including stuff about demons in them. And hmm. uh, mark me down as old fashioned, but that strikes me as a very bad idea. Yeah, what, so, what was that about? Know, I mean. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of one that was, there, there was this big thing held at, 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 a, at a, witch, a wicca shop in Brooklyn, and they were going to. We were all going to get together. Or they were all going to gather. I had nothing to do with that schlock. Um, they were going to get together and cast spells to bring down Trump. And they told people to bring all of your frustrations and everything you you, you hate about the world. Yeah, this was funny to me because this, this was funny because that's literally what happens at all left wing protests. It's like no one can agree on what it's about. <laughs> Exactly. That's what Occupy was like. One of the basic laws of magic is unity of will. If you want something to happen, you have to have all of your energies pointed in the same direction. Well, this is the chronic problem of the of the left. I mean, this is the chronic problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, I I often think um, you know the the proper sign is whatever it is, we're against it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just it's it's bizarre. And so they they were doing all of this all of this stuff and invoking demons and that you know again I'm an old I, I'm an old fashioned occultist um, I have better things to do with the, than hang out with the scum of the cosmos and that's what demons are <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just yeah, I mean, a complete dog's dog's breakfast. It's, it's it's also like directly playing into Christian stereotypes about magic. Yeah. It's just like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like okay, you're gonna be in a Jack Chick tract. Why you know? And it's yeah. like if 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 yeah, you're exactly. if you're on the well, I, I didn't see the demon thing, but I have noticed that among particularly among young people who are into magic or or on the very very far left, magicians are always fixated mm-hmm. on on that stuff. And it's just like this is like you know, this is like a Fox News segment parody of yourself yeah and i've never understood that yeah. either and i've had well, to, you know it seems like a very basic point to me as well but mm-hmm. i i have a hypothesis and we'll see how it plays out but i'm thinking back to the 1880s and 1890s and when when the french magical the great french magical revival that was kicked off by elephas levy in the 18 in the 1860s um was starting to run down you had a lot of people getting into Satanism, diabol- Diabolism, and all this kind of stuff. And they, they did that for about 10 years, and then they all up and, and uh, re- reconciled with the Catholic Church. <laughs> and it actually makes sense, because if you're going to 
if you're going to return to Christianity, you need to do it by, first of all, buying into the Christian idea of what magic is. Yes, yes. And then once you yes. do that, then you have plenty to repent, and you you, you know yeah. you can fall on your knees before, uh, before you know in the church and repent, wail about your sins and how you're this evil Satan worshiper and so on, <laughs> and it all fits within their worldview. And uh, the, a lot a lot of these people having you know having gone from Wicca to devil worship, and you know going up to the the, the temple of Satan, the convention right. up in we had in Boston last month, you know, and they're basically prepping themselves to go become conservative Catholics and Southern Baptists and so on. Right. They haven't um, broken. They haven't broken their. Uh, they have not broken their belief system. I mean, I mean, my 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 standard line on this has been for a long, long time. You can't protest. You, you know, it's like it's like you can't protest the popularity of Star Wars by putting on a Darth Vader mask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Especially and when so, the world you know, is full of beautiful, ornate, magical traditions, Golden Dawn, Tibetan exactly. Buddhism, Hindu, there's Vedanta, there's lots of real stuff out there there's that does not involve this adolescent so if thing. You're put, if you're putting on the Darth, the Darth Vader mask, that demonstrates that you really are intending to go to, to the next Star Wars movie. <laughs> no matter how loudly you insist otherwise. Exactly. And so, yeah, I think I think what we're seeing is the is the point is is the point at which a lot of the sort of pop magic scene right now is gearing up for. Well, again, like in in the wake of the '60s, you had all these hippies who were suddenly swearing off drugs and going to become Jesus people. Yeah, and then after about a year or two, they cut their hair, they got crew cuts, and got business suits and ties, and went to work at the working for the man the way they swore they never would. Yeah, I mean, this just seems, uh, I mean, this just seems an inevitable consequence of pushing in a certain direction. It is really mm-hmm. depressing that everything in America comes, is boiled back down to Christofascism. It's like, it's like impossible to get out of, for, for most of America, it's impossible to get out of that worldview. It's so mm-hmm. baked in mm-hmm. for people. You know, it's like, what, what about just becoming a, uh, I don't know. You know, it's like just what about approaching the reality reality without all this this uh you know mythology. Uh you can do magic from a, even an atheistic perspective. I would expect that more of people, mm-hmm. but uh but, that's not what we see. But there's there's a there's a reason why traditional Christianity is is as durable as it is. It actually, you know, it actually meets certain emotional needs that a lot of people have. And Unfor- you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to put it, um, atheism hasn't done that. No, atheism not has not met, does not meet those needs, and neither do most of the various alternative religions that have been trotted out. There are religions that do. I'm, I'm expecting to see uh, the African diaspora religions really take off in the United States hmm. over you know over the next fifty years or so. I expect to see um, Vodun and Santeria and so on really becoming widespread. There. Why is that? They have been Why picking up. Um, they be on the one hand, they've been picking up quite a bit of popularity. They are. Um, you know, they they are very pragmatic religions. They they offer um, a lot of the same emotional benefits, and they have a lot of magic to them as well. And also, they have the shock your mom factor. Whatever else you do, you can say to mom, "Yes, I've decided to become Wiccan," and she and she's going to go, "Oh well, you know, that's very nice, dear." You explain to them you becoming you're you're becoming a, a santero, and you're going to be cutting the heads off 
off chicken <laughs> to invoke the spirit, yeah. and she's going to have a cow right there on the spot. And that's, you know, so it has that shock your mom factor. Well, so I expect to they see, also have, I expect to see that. They yeah? also have um, established priesthoods and, and lineages. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, these, these, yeah. these traditions have a lot of the issues of their own, for sure. But oh, um, I, oh, yeah. what I was going to say but is... Every, every, Every tradition does, and so does the absence of tradition. Sure. The other thing I expect to see, as, now as India is rising to world power status, I expect to see Hinduism become much more common. In oh, for sure, for sure. I think, and I, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Chinese um, Chinese religion as well of various um, types. The, yeah. The, the one the one problem with there is that China itself is not at all into that, and the main place in the world where Chinese traditional religion is, is heavily practiced, Taiwan, Taiwan is yeah. of course under serious military threat right now. Yeah. Yeah, so, it'll be interesting to so see. I hope it I hope it does. I uh, I've had I've had a lot of interactions with Chinese traditional religion and Taoism and I think I think it's very cool, but we'll see if we'll see if they can squeak through this time. Hinduism has none of those drawbacks and it's already got a certain amount of, of um footprint here Absolutely. on one hand through yoga, on the other hand through a lot of people are interested in Vedanta and other other Hindu philosophies. There's also there's also you know Indian Americans here. I mean, like there's so many oh, yeah. so many you know, like doing traditional Indian religion, you know, which has nothing to do oh, with yeah, like exactly. hippie yoga. Exactly. So yeah, I've I've been to I've I've been to several Hindu temples in this country. Me too. And where they're doing the they're doing the whole traditional thing. So yeah, it's it's very much an option, and I think that's also likely to take off and head in some interesting directions. That's really interesting because you know I've been convinced for a long time that European paganism and Hinduism are you know of a piece. Like they there's so mm-hmm. little difference between them that to the point that it's almost mm-hmm. cosmetic. That it might be it's almost tempting to kind of buy into this like Indo-European hypothesis of it was all one religious body at one point. And it does seem to be an easy graft for um, people of European descent, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, for whatever reason. I, I think possibly because the you know language families have similar have have their own sort of basic patterns of thought, and so the fact that you've got um, Indo-European languages, you've got you've got Hindi and Sanskrit, have structures of thought, structures of, of cognition that are not that different from those of Latin and Greek and their descendants mm-hmm. in the, among the Indo-European languages. So it makes sense that it, yeah. it's a little easier for us to think around than, say, Chinese thought, sure, which yeah, comes from a completely sure. different yeah. set of language families. Sure. Yeah, it, it touches on a point you make in the book that I think was really definitely bears mentioning, which is this idea that magic all comes from within the individual, within their mind, when in reality, very much not. And I think, for instance, with things like Voodoo and Santeria, that is made shockingly clear right away. Like, no, this is real. Mm-hmm. This exists outside of you. And uh, yeah, that can be yeah. very hard for people to deal with. Very hard. <laughs> Impossible, in fact. It's, it's certain. It's certain. Yeah, it's... It takes an effort. Some people can deal with it. Some people can't. But um, as we move, as we continue down the downslope of industrial civilization, I expect to see more people having to grapple with it. Um, more people turning to that as an alternative to um, a rationalist worldview that simply doesn't work well anymore. Mm. Well, we've hit the two-hour mark, and I would love to keep going, but I don't want to keep taking up your time. Um, maybe if uh, maybe if we just kind of like draw to a close on just your general predictions about 
about where this is going. I mean, you do talk about in this book a kind of revival of uh, American and Russian culture. And at one point you even say mm-hmm. in the 26th century, and you don't, you don't qualify that at all. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm the, curious where the, that comes from, for instance. Yeah. No, there's there's been there's been a tradition in um, occult circles for quite a long time that there will be a there will be another major civilization rising out of what is now Russia, whether it's under the, under in, in any kind of governmental system that we can call Russia now is a good question. But sometime toward the end of the century, a new a new great civilization equivalent to Western civilization will be emerging in the in the Volga River basin. And it'll have a long, slow process of development. And I speculate in my book about what some of the basic ideas, maybe your basic themes. And in the same occult traditions, there's the idea that sometime around the 26th century, something of this sort will get going in um, in what's now the United States. Are, are we talking um, about the, are people, we talking about theosophy, or where, where is this from? Theosophy, theosophy is one of the sources where I got this. Yes. Okay. The theosophists were very much in the, uh, Blavatsky was very much into the idea of the, the coming Russian culture. And a lot of the later theosophists were pointing out, yeah, but then after that, there's going to be this thing called rising in America. Hmm. And just partly from Spenglerian reasons, partly from other reasons, this all seemed very sensible to me. But if this is true, yeah, we have about another 500 years here in North America <laughs> before things actually draw together to, to, sh- to become whatever culture we're going to be. And it's time. a long road, and will involve some more pseudomorphoses and very and a lot of changes and troubles. But that's the way that's the way history works. Well, the fall of Rome definitely played out over centuries, and your book in many exactly. spots reminded me of. Um, I had been reading Will Durant on Rome, and he talks mm-hmm. about the fall, and he talks about the Roman aristocracy essentially vanishing or up their own asses and going into um, you know delusion, you know, basically retreating from reality, going off to their kind of like houses uh, away mm-hmm. from the city centers getting interested in just art and, you know, the equivalent of today's virtual reality and yeah. becoming more and more decadent uh-huh. and, and fixated on minor issues that really didn't matter that much. Um, I was say, does this sound familiar to right, you? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I recommend yeah. to anyone, uh, read the last five pages of Caesar and Christ by Walter Durant and it's, it's all there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Very much so. All right. Well, this was an awesome conversation. I would love to have you back on the podcast in the future to continue it because I had a great time. And uh, what's plan on it? I had a good time. So. Oh, excellent. I'm I'm very glad. Where can people find more about you? And the book is the King and Orange. The King and Orange. I recommend it wholeheartedly. I read it in two okay. sittings and I loved it. Um, and it we've touched on a lot of the okay. themes here, but everything else. Yeah. In terms of finding my stuff, um, my, I belong weekly on ecosophia.net, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net. Um, I also put up a lot of stuff on Dreamlets. I have ecosophia.dreamlets.org. That's, that's kind of my journal for various light, um, less, less verbose postings. Um, my books are available at your local full-service bookstore or try me on bookshop.org. They have everything. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again so much and uh, looking forward to continuing the, the conversation in the future. So we'll just put a bookmark in it. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
All right. That brings us to the end of our enlightening conversation with John Michael Greer. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it as fascinating as I did. I'd like to extend my deepest thanks to John for joining us today and sharing his profound insights and research. And of course, I also want to thank you, my listener, for tuning in. Your support and curiosity make this podcast possible. I really do hope you continue to join me as I explore the intriguing intersections of magic, politics, and societal change. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get them and tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Tell your enemies about it. Okay. And before we sign off, I, of course, would like to remind you about the Magic of Tarot course now being offered by Magic.me, our latest course. It's a comprehensive course guided by the world's greatest teacher of the art, author Lon Milo Duquette. It's a transformative journey into the arcane world of tarot. And whether you're a beginner or a seasoned practitioner, this course promises to enrich your practice and ignite your spiritual evolution. Remember, the course is self-paced, fully recorded, and accessible across all your devices. And with a 100% money-back guarantee, you can invest in yourself with confidence. So, why wait? Embark on your journey today with The Magic of Tarot. Your future self is already thanking you. Visit tarot.magic.me to learn more. That's T-A-R-O-T dot M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, tarot.magic.me. I will see you in class, and thank you again for joining us. Lots of love. Hang in there. I'll see you next time.